worship, and I hope that as our uh, Cactus Campus and Mountain Valley and then the chapel next door and our venue across campus, as you guys join us, you had great worship as well. That's uh, really important as we go into the Word. Before we do that, I need to ask how many of you uh, caught the game last night? Raise your hand if you did. All right. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I, uh, you know, as you guys know, I'm a uh, diehard Cleveland Browns fan, right? Which, yeah, I know, which means that I, I live in a perpetual state of grief and loss. And so... Uh, in fact, I, I predicted that by the year 2060, the Cleveland Browns just might go to a championship game, but not anytime soon. So it's actually really amazing to live in a city that has a team that knows how to win. And uh, I grew up a Packers fan, uh, you know, as well because of, of Vince Lombardi and all that. I know. And so uh, it was just a great game, and, and I would have been okay either way. But I'm glad that the Cardinals won. I'm glad for many of you. And, uh, yep, glad with that. And uh, it, it, it's really fun, so uh, we'll, we'll hope the best. I, just so you know, I, I never pray about these things. I mean, I know some people do, but I just, I really don't think God cares. And so, uh, you know, you can send me emails and argue with me and all that stuff, but I'm telling you, you're picking a fight, you'll lose on that one. So God cares about a lot of things. And, and you know what God does care about? We're going to talk about this today. He cares about you. <laughs> and he cares about the fruits of the Spirit that we're going to talk about today. And uh and this is going to be a great series that we're in. I do have a little bit of a, uh, uh, an upper respiratory infection that I've been battling this week. So if you hear that in my voice, just that's okay. You know, it's funny. I, I call it an upper respiratory thing. When I was growing up, if you had a cough and, 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 and sniffles and, and sneezing, you'd have a cold. That's what my dad said. You know, you got a cold, now go to school and things like that. And now we call it an upper respiratory infection, which sounds a lot more ominous. I have a cold and uh, so I'm just fine. But we're going to dive in to God's word right now. So would you bow with me and let's pray. God, our heavenly father, we do thank you for your amazing grace, even your love that we've sung about here and hopefully prepared our hearts and our minds to now open up your word. So God, as we do that, would you speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit who lives within, who even ha inhabits the praises of your people. God, may there not be one of us here or in our campuses and venues that escapes the, the meaning of the thing we're, things we're going to look at today and even those watching online. We pray this in Christ's name and we all say together, amen. So we're going to talk once again today about love. And as I looked at the topic today, or this week, in preparation for today, I thought, I know what some folks are going to think the second they walk in and see the topic for today. They're going to think, love, really, again? I, I mean, Jamie, you always seem to talk about love and its corollary, grace. You just finished a fall series that you called Love One that came off a three-year campaign called Compelled by Grace, which followed a year, an entire year in 2011, in which you talked about grace. You seem to be stuck on the topic. In fact, I can guess, Jamie, what you're going to say to us today. You're going to tell us that love is the heart of God, it's the core of who he is, and that we should be loving as well. You're going to tell us that Jesus walked around Palestine 2,000 years ago engaging in relational love with those around him and that we should do the same in Phoenix today. I get it. It's all about love. Can we move on? That's what some of you are thinking already here this morning. And if you're at all tempted to think that, if you think that love is a vanilla topic, maybe even an overused topic, especially in churches or in our church, I have two responses to you before we dive in today. And the first one is simply this, that if you're tired of this topic, I want you to know it's not me who keeps bringing it up, it's God. And you need to take it up with him. I mean, there's an old saying, don't shoot the messenger. My job in the weekend services here is to be a messenger of what God has recorded for us. Amen? Let me try that again. I'm to be a messenger of what God has recorded to us. Amen? Amen. So I just read the Bible and report to you guys as, as studiously and as passionately as I can what it says. So here's the deal. I can't help it if a year ago when I did a series on attitude that one of the attitudes has to do with love. I can't help it that when Jesus reduced all the commandments down to two, they both have, both have to do with love. I can't help it when he gives us a new commandment in the Gospel of John that it has to do with love. I can't help it that when 1 Corinthians 13 boils down 
all the traits uh, of the universe into one, it's love. Are you seeing a pattern here? I can't help it. Uh, when Peter talks about what covers over a multitude of sins, it's love. I can't help it when John says the core of God, when you peel it all back, is love. And I certainly can't help it that when we start a series on the fruits of the Spirit, the very first one is love. So again, if the monotony bothers you, if the repetition gets under your skin, take it up with God. He's the one who wrote this stuff, and I think he did it for a reason. Now, the second thing I'll share with you today that just might help you get the most out of today's message, and I think this will help some of you, is that what we're going to do with this trait of love today, as it relates to being a fruit of the Spirit, is very different than what I usually do with the topic of love. You see, I'm not going to tell you today to be more loving. And I'm not going to share with you today that Jesus walked around Palestine loving people, so we should as well, even though I believe both of those things with every fiber of my being. No, what we're going to talk about today is how, is how the utter importance of love is something that needs to be core to our experiences with God on a regular basis, so much so that it becomes a part of our spiritual DNA. And when this happens, kind of like in a, it was spiritual osmosis, it just permeates into our being and starts to affect our relationships around us. That's what I want to talk to you about today. Some of you might remember last week when we started this series on the fruits of the Spirit, I made it very clear, and I'm going to keep reminding you of this, that this is not a spiritual to-do list. That, that these fruits are not written so that you would wake up and go, I need to be more loving, uh, gentle, kind, faithful, self-controlled, uh, patient, kind. And th that's not the purpose of this list. These are the things that God says he is responsible for doing in you. This is a list of things that he wants to do in your very soul, and the byproduct of that is that you will be more loving, kind, faithful, gentle, good, and all those other things. Uh, but it's not a to-do list for you and I, it's a to-do list for God. And so when we come to this idea of love the, 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 as a fruit of the Spirit, it's not that we're to be more loving, no, it's that somehow we're to do an audit of our spiritual life and say, do I experience his love? So much so that it's actually a fruit living in my very soul. Here's how this verse starts. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit, the result of having God in your life is love. And by design, it's the very first one that's mentioned here. So what we're going to talk about this morning as we uh, go into this series is how this works. What is involved in you and I experiencing God's love? Now, to accomplish this today, uh, we're going to do two things. I'm going to share with you first a very profound overriding principle which needs to be operative in our experience with God in order for love to be one of the fruits of the Spirit. <clears throat> and then once we've cemented that, we're going to end with a very practical application of this overriding principle. And here's the promise that if you apply this in your life, if you believe and live this practical application, it will guarantee that love will be one of the fruits of the Spirit reigning in your soul. And I'm not overstating it. So let's begin with the overriding principle, which is really our main point today. And it's very general, relatively simple, but I would argue very profound. And it's simply this. And that is that in order to love, you must first be loved. This is our starting point, guys to understanding the fruit of the spirit of, of love. In order to love, you must first be loved. Now, we haven't even brought God into the picture yet. We're going to in just a minute here. But what I need you to wrestle with is, do you believe this as a general principle in life? And I would submit to you that the vast majority of us here, and then listening online and at our campuses and venues, agree with this, and we show it simply by the way that we live. Now, think of parenting. I'm a parent, many of you are parents, some of you are grandparents, you, if, even if you're not a parent or a grandparent, at one point you were a kid. So we all have something in common here. And, and here's the, what I know, and that is that one of the main things that parents do, if you're a good parent, is love your children. Give me a head nod that that was part of your agenda. Why? Uh, so that someday they too might be loving individuals. That's what we do as parents. We dote on, we love, we even discipline our kids, which is a form of love. And we do that 
because we know that in order for them to someday being lo- to be loving, they need to be loved first. And to be sure, even kids that don't grow up in homes that are very loving and yet turn out to be loving, you look close, it's because they found love elsewhere. Amen? Through a good friend or through a relationship with God or maybe some surrogate parents. The reality is we all know that if we've turned out to be loving at all, it's because somebody modeled for us what that looks like and or they loved us. And so we live the whole principle that in order to love, you need to first be loved. The radical reality is is that we believe that to be true in life. Now, the reason that this principle is so important to grasp and to honor is because, watch this, God declares it works the same way when it comes to him. It's true. God says that in order for you and me to have the fruit of the spirit of love, his divine love, reigning in our souls, so much so that other people might even see it and experience it in us, it's only going to come when we experience being loved. And I mean experience it by him. And there's no way around If you don't believe me, look at how the Bible shares this in very clear language. Look at 1 John 4, verses 10 through 12. It says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, which means forgiver. The word means the appeasing of wrath, the forgiver of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, Now we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, gang, there's a lot going on in this passage here. But notice how it builds one upon another in stating three rather inarguable things to us. First, it begins by saying that God loves us in Jesus Christ. That's the beginning of it all. We didn't love him first. He loved us and sent his son to be the forgiver of our sins. And that starts the whole ball rolling. He reached out first. He loved us first. We are loved and have been loved. And then in verse 11, it says that once you experience this, and we'll talk about how to do that in a second, by its very nature, it then motivates you to love others. In fact, it's a really poetic way that John says it. He says, if God so we also ought. Isn't that wonderful? If God so loved us, then we also ought to love those around us. And he's arguing that it's just going to work that way. But we're not yet quite at the mountaintop yet because God loved us first. We then love others flowing out of that. Now watch this. Then he says in verse 12 that when you love others with the divine love that's put in you, you then have a further experience of God Because his love now abides in you and is perfected in you. Whoa. So it becomes a beautiful circle. Are you seeing this? That it begins up here with God loving you and me. And then once we experience that love, we start to love others in our lives. But then God argues that when we love others, that gives us a further experience of his love. His love abides in us and is perfected in us. And now we're back at the top again. And it just keeps repeating itself in this grand divine circle of love. But don't miss that we love by being loved. And it all hinges on the love of God being experienced on a regular basis in our lives. A few years ago, I read a a great book uh, that actually won some awards called The Anatomy of the Soul by Christian psychiatrist Kurt Thompson. And Compton's known most for his argument that in order to know, you need to first be known. And he really means this in the realm of love, that in order to love, you first need to be loved. Look at what he says in the anatomy of the soul. I like this. He says, you cannot know God if you do not experience being known by him or being loved by him. He says that the degree to which you know God is directly reflected in your experience of being known by him. And the degree that you are known by him will be reflected in the way in which you are known by other people. And then look at how he wraps it up. 
He says, in other words, your relationship with God is a direct reflection of the depth of your relationship with others. But what's he saying there? He's saying that if you find yourself having problems loving other people, go back to your relationship with God. Because it's probably a deficit of your experience with God. Because in the positive, if you're having a good love experience with God, it by spiritual osmosis is going to leak into your relationships with those around you. Give me a head nod that you need to understand the principle. And that's what he's arguing here. That in order for us to know, in order for us to love, you got to first be known. you got to first be loved. And, and it's just as much true, if not more, with God than in anywhere else in life. In order to love, you got to first be loved. Outside of which, you'll never have the fruit of the Spirit of love in your life. Now, if you're tracking with me so far, and I think many of you are, uh, the obvious question becomes then, well, how do you then experience God and his love on a regular and abiding basis? And that's the key. I mean, if, if it takes being loved in order to love, and this works in our spiritual life more than anywhere else, then how precisely do we experience God's love in our lives regularly and consistently? And this brings us to the practical application that I want us to explore today. And once again, what I'm going to do, don't hang in here with me, guys, is I'm going to give it to you in very broad, principial form, even before I bring God into the picture. I want us to understand this application. Then we're going to ease our way into how this works with God. And the application I'm going to give you, I think you're going to like, I call it the anatomy of an experience. I'm simply going to ask you to consider that when you have any experience this side of heaven, I mean, just what we would label an experience, what goes into making up that experience? And here's what I would suggest to you. That, that, that understanding plus engagement are the two components that make up an experience. Now, now, now bear with me here. That, that when you and I understand certain things about something or someone and then follow up that knowledge or understanding by engaging our will or our emotions or even our bodies with what we understand, then by the very nature of that, we label it an experience. I'm going to submit to you that understanding plus engagement equals experience. Well, what do I mean by this? I'm going to give you a very simple example that goes back to the early days of my wife, Kim, who's in this service here. Uh, when I first started dating Kim 30 years ago, I had just gotten out of college and she was still in college. And when I first started dating Kim, I was in what you might call an understanding phase of this woman. I would argue I'm still in that phase, but that's for another sermon. But when I first started dating Kim, I tried to understand her, her likes, her dislikes, her cares, her feelings, her thoughts, her emotions, even her idiosyncrasies. I was very interested in this woman. And we spent a lot of our early dates and discussions and talks and, and, and working hard to understand our history and, and who we were. And then as relationships progress... Uh, you start to move into the engagement part of a relationship. We started to share really tender feelings and, and tender thoughts. And then we held hands. And then we eventually kissed as we engaged each other in further relationship. And eventually, based upon understanding as best I could her, and then engaging her with my being, I eventually fell in love with her. And that love became a profound and still is, honey, experience. And though Kim might see it as awfully unromantic that I define our love by understanding and engagement <laughs> that equals an experience, she loves me back and understands that's how I think. <laughs> but, but I want you to think about this in every other area of your life. This is what happens when you and I have an experience. Whether it's with your spouse like me and Kim or with a coworker, a family member, a friend, a kid, a neighbor. Even with things like nature, you, you look close. This is what's happening. I mean, I love the Grand Tetons. I've been there 10 times up in Wyoming. And, you know, when I, when I go to the Grand Tetons, I tend to have an experience, almost a spiritual experience with the majesty and the grandeur of the Grand Tetons. But when I audit what makes up that experience, it's not that complicated. 
I understand the Grand Tetons. They're 14,000 feet above sea level. They jut right out of the ground like they just sprouted up. They're made of wonderful rock formations and fauna, and there's beautiful canyons, and I, I understand them. But then when I'm with them and in them, something happens in my soul. Some of you can relate to this, where I'm engaging the Grand Tetons, as Teddy Roosevelt did when he first, by horseback, saw them. And you're moved in your spirit, and you have an experience. But what makes up that experience is understanding and an engagement. And to be sure, if you take either one of these components out of it, you don't have an authentic experience. I, I grew up in a home. I, I love my dad a lot. He's 82 this year. We've made a lot of peace with each other. But, you know, in the home that I grew up with, my dad, he was arguably very distant from me. It was a typical family in the 60s for, for a lot of people. Uh, my dad was very driven, very busy. He was a successful lawyer. He had grown up in the Great Depression. And so, you know, he was very tough. And so I grew up in a home where my dad never told me he loved me. He never touched me. Uh, he didn't even hit me. I mean, my dad just, just kept distance. And and uh, I can remember growing up, my mom would say to me on a regular basis, because, you know, she saw this, and she'd say, you know your father loves you. You know, he, he tells me that. Deep down, you know, he, he really loves you. But, you know, I never heard it, and I, I never got that from him. Now he tells me it all the time, but too late. Anyways, you know, but, but, he, but he told me it a lot, you know, never told me that growing up. And, and I can remember, you know, you get old, you get soft. But I can remember, you know, being a young man, and, and tell me if this is true. I thought, okay, I do understand that. I understand. Mom's right. Dad does love me. I understand that. But what was I lacking? I was lacking engagement. And, and that messed with my experience of that. And, and to be sure, when the opposite happens, you lack experience. I mean, if you have an engagement with somebody but no understanding... It's, it's not really a good or a full experience. An example of that would be, um, you know, again, I, I, I grew up at home that didn't have a lot of touch and stuff like that, and so I'm kind of the opposite. I mean, I love hugging my wife. I love hugging my girls. I don't like hugging you guys very well, but I do love hugging my family, and, and I'm not a hugger, but I, I, it's not unusual for me to come in, and Abby or Hannah will be there, and Paul's a lot like me, so he doesn't like to be hugged, but Hannah or Abby will be there, and I'll just come up and give him a big bear hug. And I'll say, you girls know how much I love you. And I just care for you, and I'll grab onto them for, you know, 20, 30 seconds. And it's very appropriate. They're my daughters, and, and it's built upon an understanding that I'm their dad and that I love them. But imagine what would happen if you came up to me after a service and, and say you're a woman, and, and you came up and said, hey, Pastor Jamie, I've never met you. I just wanted to introduce myself to you. And all of a sudden, I just reached out and grabbed you and hugged you and held on for like 30 seconds and said, oh, it's so good to meet you. And I, I mean, wouldn't that just be kind of creepy? I mean, at the very least, it would. I mean, it would not be very appropriate. But think about what would make that inappropriate. There's no understanding. You don't know who I am and I'm not your dad and you're not my daughter and there's no history. Now, by the way, in a, in a very tender way, this is why the abuse of children sexually is so traumatic, because they have an engagement with somebody who violates them, and in their little minds, they have no understanding of what that means. Even if they did, they'd still be violated, but it's what makes that such a, a terrible experience and, and takes years to undo. See, see, we all know this, understanding plus engagement is the proper way to have an experience in this world. Now, once again, the reason that this is so important, because we haven't even brought God into it yet, but let's do so now, is that God says that our pathway to experiencing Him functions precisely the same way. One of my favorite all-time verses in the New Testament is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. Let's park in front of this for a minute. It says this, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love, meaning you're saved, Jesus is in your life, you've come to accept him. Now watch this. May have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses the knowledge that you just grasped, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, now gang, you got to see what's going on here. It says here that Paul, inspired by the Spirit, 
says to Christians who are rooted and established in Christ's love that they may be able to grasp. That word in the original language means to seize with your mind to perceive something, to understand something. It's used in other contexts in the New Testament to, to refer to the light going on in your head to the point that where you go, I get it, I understand it. That's what that word means, to grasp. And what are you grasping here? How wide and long and high and deep, those are dimensional terms, they are terms of extent, is the love of Christ for you. So it all begins, your experience with God, even as a Christian, with you grasping, understanding, because this is the anatomy of an experience, something about God, and it's the core of God, and that's that he loves you, and he loves you more than you could ever imagine, and he loves you in such a radical, ruthless, even reckless way that there's nothing you could ever do to change that. But that's just the beginning of your experience. You're just grasping something mentally. But then notice that the second part of the experience comes in. It's understanding plus engagement. You then need to know this love. That word know is the Greek word gnosko. It simply means to know by experience. It means to know in such a way that you're involving your whole self in that knowing. Your body, your mind, your will, your emotions. And it goes beyond knowledge because you're knowing this love, you're experiencing this love that surpasses knowledge, and then the final experience comes in that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And I would argue then we go back to Galatians 5 and say the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit of love is reigning in your soul. But you got to grasp it, and then you have to know it in order to experience it. You know, uh, I think one of the saddest realities for me as a pastor is that I engage Christians every day, week in and week out, that I think doctrinally uh, get it. Doctrinally, they've come to believe in Jesus Christ and they understand his substitutionary death on a cross for their sins and they understand that he came for them and they believe that and, and ergo, according to the Bible, they are saved. Uh, but then in their experience with God, it becomes greatly lacking from that point on. And so as a result of that, we then get to the fruit of the Spirit. And we go, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and, and on and on. And, and, and we, we almost get real quiet at that point. Because we know if truth be known, I'm really not all that. <laughs> I got good knowledge. I go to church. I, I tithe 10% on the gross. I, 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 I'm pretty obedient. I don't have any grotesque sins, or maybe I do, but you don't know about them, and things like that, you know, and, and all that. But when it really comes to the things that matter in our souls, it's greatly lacking. Uh, Brennan Manning, when he was alive, used to say that the average Christian is like a travel agent who talks about places that they've never been and dreams about places that they have never seen. And he was arguing that Christians talk a big game, but when it comes to our experience, it's greatly lacking. And, and, and though that sounds brutal, I think he's right. I, I think that many people see our lives, and let's just be honest in the house of God today, and, 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 and when they hear about this fruit of the Spirit, they go, hey, no offense, but I don't think I would have used words like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control to describe you. You go to church, but... I think there's something missing. And, and, and if that at all resonates with you in any way at all, or even in your assessment of Christianity, we then have to do an audit of our experience. And we have to ask ourselves, could it be that the problem is we've given lip service to the fact that God loves us, but we really haven't understood that in, in the depth that Paul is talking about, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep and that certainly we haven't engaged God on that level. And when was the last time you had an overwhelming experience of the love of God for you? I, I just, to talk about this grasping thing for a minute. Just let me, let me ask you a couple questions. How well do you understand the love of God for you? Here's a couple things that the Bible says about the love of God. Give me a, a click on the uh, first one here. The, the, one of the things that the Bible says about the love of God is that God's love is here fully right now. That sounds like a simple statement, but I don't think many Christians believe that for their lives. 
In other words, when you're going through hell, when you're in an evil situation, when you're in a secular or decadent situation, let me ask you, do, do you admit and fully affirm that the love of God is fully with you 100% right now, no matter where you are, all the time? And in that sense, available to you. Do you believe that? See, I don't think a lot of Christians really do. But that is more theologically true and robust than about anything I can tell you. How do we know this is true? The psalmist says it this way. If I go up to heaven, God is there. If I go down to hell, God is there. If I go to the farthest ends of the earth, God is there. And then John tells us that the core of God is love. It's, it's rooted in his character and his being. He can be no other. So add those two together. God's love is fully everywhere present, all the time, available to Christians, any moment of any day. It's always, always, always with you. I love how Amy Carmichael, the great missionary, once said it. She said, there is no need to plead that the love of God shall fill our heart as though he were unwilling to fill us. He is willing as light is willing to flood a room that is open to its brightness. He's as willing as water is willing to flow into an empty channel. She says, love is pressing around us on all sides like air. Do you believe that? When you grasp the love of God for you, are these the kind of thoughts that you have? I hear a lot of Christians say to me all the time, well, I went through this experience and I don't know where God was. And I get that. I feel like that sometimes too. But then theologically, because this is where it all begins, in my grasping, I say, well, that might have been what I felt, but that was not true. <laughs> His love has never left me. It is always, always, always with me because God is always with me and he can be no other. So, yeah, I didn't feel it or experience it. We'll get to why that was in a minute. But it had nothing to do with God. It had nothing to do with his love for me. It's always there. And then let me share with you a second thing about love that I'm not sure a lot of people understand about God, and that's that God's love is a pure result of his grace. Do you guys understand that one? <laughs> in other words, and I don't mean to insult you here today, but, but do you understand that, that God loves you only because he chooses to love you. It's not because there's anything special or intrinsically valuable in you. I mean, honestly, we, I, we tell people the opposite all that. Well, God loves me because he don't make no junk. I said, they go, well, that, that's true. God doesn't make any junk, but sin does, and sin is running rampant in your life. And so the reality is, is that God would have every reason not to love us. We're fallen, we're pathetic, we're a mess. That we hide things really well, even though we look good on the outside, which means that we're a bunch of big fakes. So all that is true about our lives. And we know that if people really found out who we really are, they probably wouldn't love us, which is why we don't tell them uh, things that are really true about our lives. But God sees all of it, and he says he still loves you. And have you ever wrestled with why that's so? Why is it that God loves you? Well, I, I tell you this, and again, I, I know we don't tell our kids this because we are trying to build them up so much, but the reality is God loves you only because he is a God of love and he chooses to love you. Israel. <laughs> Israel. God is, a, God is an amazing lover of Israel. It's his chosen nation. Still is today, I believe. And, and from Old Testament times, God chose Israel to be the apple of his eye, the nation that he would pour so much of his grace and blessing into all through the Old Testament, then unleashing it upon the rest of us, the Gentiles in the New Testament, but still having a plan for Israel. Do you know why God chose Israel? Let me show you. Look at Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8. This is an amazing passage. It says, the Lord, he's speaking to Israel here, he says, the Lord did not set his affection on you, Israel, and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you are the fewest of all peoples. Now watch this. No, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. So why did God choose Israel? Because he loved them. Why did he love them? He just told us in the previous verse it had nothing to do with anything they were and weren't. It was because he chose to. And we call that grace, unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to get it, but you got it anyways. And that's why God loves you. The New Testament is chock full of that, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that nobody may boast. He loves you because he has chosen to love you. Again, Brennan Manning in his great book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, says it this way. This is really hard-hitting. He says, if Jesus appeared at your dining room table tonight, 
with knowledge of everything that you are and are not, total comprehension of your life story and every skeleton in your closet, if he laid out the real state of your present discipleship with the hidden agenda, the mixed motives, and the dark desires buried in your psyche. Let me pause right there. Are you starting to sweat yet? I mean, what he's saying is if Jesus physically showed up at your dining room table tonight and knew everything about you, the things that you desperately are hiding from those around you, even just the things that you feel and think while driving down the 101 and somebody cuts you off, all those things, if he knew everything about you, you would feel his acceptance and forgiveness. Were you, were you expecting that? See, the way I hear a lot of Christians talk today is that they say the opposite. You know, if God really knew, there'd be a lightning bolt coming on you. God really knew, boy, would he be disappointed. Shame, shame, shame. I mean, that, that's what we tell people. They sit there and go, well, what gospel have you bought into? Because that's not the gospel. The gospel, look at how Manning finishes this quote here. He says, for experiencing God's love in Jesus Christ, the gospel means experiencing that one has been unreservedly accepted and infinitely loved, that one can and should accept oneself and one's neighbor. Why? Salvation is joy in God, which expresses itself in joy in and with one's neighbor. And you can't separate the two. See, you and I, I think, have a lot more grasping to do about the love of God. We really do. And I never tire talking about it because my thick head gets filled with so many other competing ideas. How about you? And I tend to get off track so fast. And I tend to get angry and bitter and judgmental and all these things. Even as your pastor, I confess it. I do. And when that happens, I need to go back to Ephesians 3, verses 17 to 19, and say, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And it begins by affirming it's with me everywhere, all the time. I can't even escape it. And it's a pure result of his grace. That's how much he loves you and me. But now let me really blow you away. We haven't even started to experience it yet. Have you noticed that? We're just grasping it. We're just trying to understand it. Paul goes on to say in verse 19 here, I think we have it here, that the next step is to now know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So in our time remaining, we have a few minutes. We're going to go a few minutes over. I just need to warn you, uh, for those of you who want to get on to the football game in progress, tough, this is much more important. So we're just going to go a few minutes over. And I love football, but, but let's really wrestle with this. What does it mean to know his love? Have you ever thought about that? And, and how do you do that? I want to share with you just a couple of ideas. The first way that you and I know the love of God are by the choices that we make every day. And I don't mean choices of right or wrong. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the things we choose to do each day, each week, each month, that we choose to do because they, now watch this, they place us in the pathway of God's grace and presence. And though they're not magic, they don't, always produce an experience of his love, they stand a good chance when we do them long enough and rich enough, and I'm going to argue that one really well strongly right now, that we need to do these in a rich and real and authentic way, that, that when you do these things that we can choose to do, they, they really do stand a chance of you experiencing the love of God in your life. What things am I talking about? Well, for 2,000 years, Christians have engaged regularly in worship. But you see, here's the problem with worship, is that for many of us today, worship means going to church singing five or six songs, hearing a good sermon, dropping something in the offering plate, and then going out to Buster's for lunch. That's what church means for us. But that's not what worship means in a biblical way. You know what worship means? It means that when you gather in the assembly with other Christians, you come in like this, giving your whole heart to God. And when the music starts, you're not going to sing three songs to get to the sermon. You're going to give yourself to God in these songs, thinking about them with every fiber in your being and giving yourself over to God. And again, doesn't that kind of add new light to singing songs in church on a Sunday morning? But you see, many of us don't do that. I, I'm not trying to judge us. It's a discernment. I'm not trying to judge us. I'm just telling you, I, I look around sometimes 
and I watch this, and I'm not saying you have to be like this, but even the way I watch them, you're like, okay, you know, the love of God, so pure and good. I wonder what is for lunch. I mean, that's the way we sing. And I sit there and go, no, 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 no. Again, if you choose to do that, that's fine. But you know what you're going to get out of it? Nada. Nothing. You're going to walk away from church and go, that was a good sermon. Because how could you say otherwise? That was a good sermon. <laughs> but the reality is I didn't get much out of it. And I said, and they're going, okay, you just met with the God of the universe, with his people. And you dare to say you got nothing out of it. Wow. Well, then guess where the problem is? <laughs> it's with you. Because <laughs> it ain't with God. He says he inhabits the praises of his people. He says he loves to be where his people are. So he's here. We've already established that. Did you grasp that one yet? He's here. And, and somehow something ain't getting through. It's your heart that's not open to him. Let's get richer in our worship. How about the word and prayer? We tell you guys to have quiet times all the time. <laughs> we tell you to carve out time in your world, spend time with God, and just maybe he'll show up and give you an experience of himself. Again, the problem with today's world is that many of you, your sum total, your quiet time is the daily bread, <laughs> which I love it. James, <laughs> listen to me, James McDonald calls it the daily crouton. I, I mean, honestly, it, it's really what it is, the daily crouton. So people, people hate it when I call it that. And, and let me just go on record saying, I like the daily bread. I do. We have it here. We even have the large print version because we're an older church. And, you know, I get that. And, and I, for years, read the daily bread. But you, you know what I realized? It really is the daily crouton. It's one little scripture. It's one nice little story. And it has a nice little prayer. But many of us, we read it and it takes us, what, three minutes? And we go, oh, isn't that really nice and quaint? And you know, they get on with the day. And we wonder why we don't experience God. Listen, we experience him in his word. When we study and meditate and we pause and we park. Not always. But I tell you, I spend a lot of time in God's word. And there are many, many times that I experience him. I, 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 I'll be studying this book, and all of a sudden I'll put it down halfway through a study session. I'll go, oh, my gosh, God, I can't believe. That's really true about you. That's really true about you. Whoa. And, and something's happened in my heart and mind. And, and I'm engaging God at that moment with all of who I am. Much different than the way many of us read the Word. How about community and fellowship? Again, these are choices we make. Again, I, I don't mean to be down on us, but, but you know, the, the way the average Christian does community and fellowship today is we get together, we study a Bible passage, we share a few really safe, non-vulnerable prayer requests, right? And, and then we pray for maybe five, ten minutes at the most. And then we go, oh, you got any, got any snacks? Anybody brought any brownies or anything like that? And again, and, and, that, that, and we feel so good driving back from our Bible study or, or our small group. Man, I'm telling you. You know, when John Wesley was alive, he's the founder of Methodism. Now, Wesley had a list of like 12 things you had to do if you were in one of his small groups. And you know what the very first thing was? Confess all of your sin <laughs> to one another. Can you imagine if you walked into your small group this week and they said, okay, here's the deal. I want it all. Tell me everything. Everything you thought, everything you did, everything you said, and don't hold anything back. You'd be going, oh, no, you really don't want to know that. Because, you see, if you knew that, You'd be kicking my butt out the door. You don't want to know that. But, but you really do. What's the Bible say? Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. See, see and again, some of us wonder why we're not experiencing God in community and fellowship. I'm telling you right now, I know why. Because you're just not honest. <laughs> you're afraid. You're hiding. I get it. Maybe the small group you're in couldn't take your honesty. Well, then get out of it for crying out loud. Find one that will. I mean, the reality is, is that we live in a town that just applauds hiding and applauds looking good and, and applauds fakery. We don't want to be a church like that, do we? No, we want to have a church in which there's community and fellowship going on so that we experience God. And what happened, I'll be honest, we experience God when we share him with others. We experience God when we're obedient. When everything in you says sin and you say, no, I have the power of the Holy Spirit in me, I'm not going to sin. You experience God. See, see, these are choices we can make. We call them spiritual disciplines. Because, again, we don't do these to keep you busy. We, we tell you to do these things because they place you in the pathway of God. Can you visualize it that way? There's a jet stream of God going on in this world. And for 2,000 years, people much greater and smarter and more godly than me have noted that to be in that jet stream, 
you got to make some choices each moment of each day. Church is only an hour a week. My gosh, you got six days and 23 hours left till we're going to meet again. So what are you doing during that time? You make choices to place yourself in the pathway of God. And again, they're not magic. I do these things all the time. And many times I go, well, okay, what's next? You know, and, and things like that. But once in a while, my mentor Ludd back in Cleveland, once in a while you have what Ludd calls a God sighting. Where we have a God sighting where all of a sudden you go, whoa, 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 that, that's the Lord. And, and the Lord's breaking into my world. And, and you start to experience his love. And, and some of us do this on a regular basis and we're experiencing God. And before you know it, the fruit of the Spirit is starting to be manifest in your life. There's a second way, and with this will be done, that we experience God. And the first one is choice. I will tell you, you're not going to like this, but this is so biblical, it's not funny. The second way is when we crash. I don't know why it is, but God who loves you is in such the business of when, when you crash in your life, if you would all open yourself up to him, he tends to want to meet you in that place. Somebody once said that God doesn't tend to meet us on mountaintops where nothing grows. He meets us in valleys where things are lush and, and things grow. And, and it really is true in life that sometimes the deepest people you know are the people who have been through literally hell and back. And if you ask them why it is there that way, what is it about that hellacious experience you went through that revealed God, they would say, I'm not really even sure. All I know is that he did. And again, I don't know why God does this. Maybe because it's a fallen world. Maybe because we dig our heels in so well. I don't know. All I know is that sometimes the richest, most spiritually experienced people I know have experienced some profound crashes in their life. And in that, they met God. And it is biblical. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5 is an amazing verse. It says, not only so, but we also, now dial into this, we glory in our sufferings. Just pause there. How many of you gloried in your sufferings this week? Raise your hand if you did. One guy last night rose his hand. And I said, really? I called on him. I said, really, Glenn? You, you gloried in your suffering? And, and he came up to me after. He said, yeah. And he told me the story. And I said, yep, you actually did. Good for you. You're the only one in the entire worship center that believed Paul the apostle that we can glory in our sufferings. Now, why would you glory in your sufferings? Let's read on what he says. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Now let's read on. And hope does not put us to shame or disappoint us. Why? Because, here it is, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And why has God's love been poured out to your heart? Go back to the original part of this passage. Go back one frame, guys. Because of you glorying in your sufferings. Don't miss this, guys. When you and I crash, when we experience difficult times in life, if you can somehow look to God and begin to say, God, I don't understand why this is happening to me. This stinks this happened to me. I mean, this is awful. But, but I'm looking to you. I'm opening myself to you. I'm reaching out to you. Something happens many times for Christians in which God reveals himself in the midst of your pain, in the midst of the difficulty. It's a very mystical thing, but it's very real. And you actually look back and you say, I'm glorying in that suffering <laughs> because the God of the universe who loves me showed me his love in the midst of that pain. And, and here's the deal, guys. I, I believe this so much from my own life that if you were to ask me today, how is, is it choice or crash that, that reveals the love of God to us? Choice or crash, what would the answer be? It, yes, it's both. I, I once had a dear friend back in Cleveland, Doug Flood, who's now died and been with the Lord, once said to me when I was a very, very young Christian, and I was so afraid of failing, I was so afraid of pain, I was so afraid of going through difficult times because I, I didn't want that as a pastor. I just wanted to succeed and, and, and pastor, you know, large churches and be on the speaking circuit and all those silly things that, that we all dream of and all that. And Doug Flood once said to me, he said, well, here's all I know, Jamie. Until you fail, fail miserably, until you crash, you're probably never going to experience the love of God in your soul as you need to. I'm, this was back in like 1980s, and I thought, that absolutely sucks. I can't even believe you just said that to me. And I even said to him, I said, so what you're saying is I got to go through pain and difficulty and even failure in order to become a rich, deep, loving man of God? And what did he say? Yes. And you know what? 30 years later, <laughs> he's right. 
I've been through some crashes. I've been through some difficult times. Many of them you guys don't even know about because I don't get up here and bleed all over you, but believe me, I have them. In fact, there's times where I don't even know if I can make it another day in the ministry because of things going on in my life and, and, and in my soul and all these things. I, I just don't know if I even have it in me. And it's at those moments. It's at those moments that God meets me. And, and he says, I am with you, my son. I love you. Just hang in there. You are not alone. And again, I can't explain to you that experience except to say that it's an understanding, it's an engagement, and it's real. It is God. And he wants to do that for you. But it's not going to happen without choice. And at times even without a crash. Right, let's close with this. Annie Dillard, who's a great writer in writing about these things, and she writes spiritually about you know the disciplines and even the difficulties, says it this way. She says, you do not have to do these things unless you want to know God. You don't have to sit outside in the dark. If, however, you want to look at the stars, you will find the darkness is necessary. And she's right. And if you want to see the stars, what do you do? You gotta go out on a dark, cold night and look up and you'll see the stars. If you wanna know God, you gotta make some choices. And you gotta to respond to your crashes a little bit differently. And you gotta open yourself up to him. Never met anybody who did that that didn't say only God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. We've gone a few minutes over, but it's worth it, God, because this is more of an important topic than we could ever even imagine in our lives. We've just scratched the surface. The fact that your love, the very first fruit of the Spirit, the greatest of all traits ever listed in the Scriptures, the core of the two greatest commandments, that really can be a part of our experiential base. And I pray, God, that as we give cogent and reasonable, hopefully even passionate thought to our own lives individually, and as we even audit our own spiritual experiences, God, I pray that you would meet us in that kind of analysis and that, God, we might be honest about where we are and, Lord, even cry out to you with the desires of our heart and what we desire when it comes to knowing you. God, that's where it all is, is knowing the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And, Lord, if we have that, we have everything. Do that work of grace in our hearts, we pray. Do that in our church. And may you use us and may the fruit be evident. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray and we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day. Amen.